Well, good morning, friends. It's lovely to see you today. God bless. Please grab your seats. And today we are in the final week of our Life of David series, which we've called The Once and Future King, obviously a reference to David, the once king, and Jesus, the future king, who is called the son of David. Uh, Today we're going to look through a pretty large portion of David's life toward the end of his reign in his final years as the king of Israel. In order to do that, we're going to look at one fairly tragic section of David's life, uh, which relates to the death of his son, Absalom. And we're going to read from 2 Samuel chapter 18. It'll be on the screen. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel. And the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There Israel's troops were routed by David's men. And the casualties that day were great. 20,000 men. The battle spread over the whole countryside and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree and he was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept going. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. And Joab said to the man who had told him this, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have had to give you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I put my life in jeopardy, and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart, while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet, and the troops stopped pursuing Israel for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. And we continue into 2 Samuel 19, when David hears the news of Absalom's death. Then the messenger arrived and said, My lord the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king asked the messenger, is the young man Absalom safe? And the messenger replied, may the enemies of my Lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. And the king was shaken. He went up to his room over the gateway and wept. And he went, as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son My son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Joab was told, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning because on that day the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. 
and the men stole into the city that day as men steal, as steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab went into the house to the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and the other men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth until now. So the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Meanwhile, the Israelites had fled to their homes. Lord, I pray that as we look at this difficult and tragic moment in David's life, that we will hear your word to us. And I pray that your spirit will minister to us and help us, Lord Jesus, to hear and enter into uh, the wisdom that comes only from you as we contemplate and meditate together today uh, on what this passage might mean for us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So in order to try and enter into the tenor of this passage, the the heart of this passage, I wanna play uh, two minutes of a choral piece written by David Whitaker called When David Heard. And it's a 17 minute long piece which you can look up and listen for yourself. But it's based on this moment when David hears that his son Absalom is dead. I'm just gonna play the first couple of minutes.
It's a haunting piece of music. It's a haunting passage of scripture. Last week, Linda led us through the horrific incident involving David's son Amnon's rape of his half-sister Tamar. And as Linda pointed out, that while David was rightly furious at what had happened, in the end, he did nothing, either to punish Amnon or even to comfort and take care of his daughter Tamar. Why doesn't David do something about it? Why doesn't he deal with this sin and this pain in his family? And as Linda mentioned, David's inaction was most likely due to his own guilt and regret over what had happened between himself and Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. How could David punish his son when he was guilty of the same crime? How could he face Tamar? The problem is that David's unwillingness to deal with these sins sowed the seeds for this future disaster that we're looking at today. Uh, His refusal to address the problems in his family end up passing it on and making it many times worse. Eventually, Tamar's brother Absalom, who we've just read about, another of David's sons, who is clearly angry that his father has not punished Amnon for what he did to Tamar, takes matters into his own hands and gets Amnon drunk and then has him murdered. After which Absalom flees Jerusalem uh, and stays away from the city for three years. Eventually, uh, actually through the um, appeal of Joab, David permits Absalom to return to Jerusalem, but David refuses to see him face to face for at least another two years. And when David finally agrees to meet with Absalom, and Absalom knows that in this moment, uh, in fact, he might be killed, when he finally agrees, David, uh, to meet with Absalom, what happens is that David kisses his son as a greeting, but refuses to speak to him, refuses to speak to him. In other words, David's prepared to tolerate Absalom's presence, but his actions have clearly not been forgiven. You know, by rights, as I said, Absalom should have been put to death for murdering his brother, but again, probably because David knows that incident occurred because of his own inaction, his own passivity, David is not willing to punish Absalom or even really to address the issue. Like his refusal to speak is basically a way of saying, we're just going to try to put this behind us. We're not going to deal with it. And ultimately, friends, all of this stems from David's sin with Bathsheba. It's a story we've all heard before. One sin leads to another. One injustice leads to another and another and another, just compounding the issues and compounding the pain. And now Absalom knows that his father is weak and he despises him for it not only for not taking care of Tamar or punishing Amnon, but ultimately because David's not leading with justice. David is no longer leading Israel with justice. And so how can he lead the country when he won't even lead his own family? And so Absalom, whom everyone acknowledges is this incredibly impressive man, we're told, uh, I think it's in 2 Samuel 15, that he is flawless from head to toe and that his hair was beautiful. Ironically, it's his hair that gets him killed in the end. He starts to believe that he could do a much better job of leading Israel than his own father. And so he sets himself up at the city gates and begins to flatter the people who come in for justice, who come in to see David, to address themselves before the court and and seek justice for some issue that might be going on in their life. 
And what Absalom is doing is that every time someone comes into the city gates, he flatters them saying, well, your case is clearly right, but you won't get any justice from David. But, he says, if only I was one of the judges of Israel, if only I were able to administer justice, then you'd get justice. And eventually, after four years of doing this, and again, David does, probably knew about it, but didn't put an end to it. After four years of doing this, Absalom has effectively turned the whole of Israel against David. And when the moment is right, Absalom gathers his troops and starts a civil war. And he's out for his father's blood. He marches on Jerusalem, and upon hearing this, David begins to weep, and he flees the city. Now, some think this was an act of weakness, like David's basically given up. Others think of this as a tactical retreat. Like David knows he can't beat Absalom in Israel, but if he gets out of the city, gathers his troops, musters his forces in a, a convenient location, he might be able to take them on and win. We're not really sure. We're not told. Either way, David flees the city. He goes across the Jordan. He gathers his men, and he uh, begins to fight back. And... The commandment, the commanders, sorry, the, the army is led by the commander Joab, and as we have read, the whole thing turns into a tragedy that results in the deaths of some 20,000 men, and ultimately Absalom's army is routed, and he himself suffers a humiliating death, caught by his beautiful hair in the branches of an oak tree, hanging there between heaven and earth, and then stabbed to death by Joab and his men. You may recall that when Nathan the prophet confronted David, he said to David concerning his sin with Bathsheba that because of what he'd done, though the Lord had forgiven him, the consequences of his actions will be disastrous for his family. Your children and your children's children will suffer because of what you have done. Why? Because, friends... One sin always leads to another. Sin never just dissipates once it's been committed. It actually embeds itself in us, and if we feed it and water it, it grows until it kills us, like a cancer. This is why the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Here's what Nathan said. It's on the slide. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. So clearly, friends, this prophecy has come to pass. And David, upon hearing the news of Absalom's death, instead of being pleased that his enemy has been defeated, he's overwhelmed with grief and with guilt and regret, and he weeps bitterly for his son, which, as Joab, David's commander, tells him, shames those who have fought for him and disgraces their loyalty. Joab tells them, tells him, though you hate those who love you and you love those who hate you. Now, while David does eventually follow Joab's advice and go out to look upon his troops, he finds he has nothing to say to them. You know, Joab says, encourage the men, say something to them. But David turns up and he's got no words. He has nothing to say. 
And this failure of David's leadership sows even more seeds for future civil war and division. And really, friends, it's only by the sheer grace of God in the end that David is able to unite the country under his leadership and then eventually pass on the kingship to Solomon, his son, just before he dies. But it hangs in a balance uh, for most of the rest of David's life. But in this moment, when David hears that his son Absalom is slain, he falls into a deep, deep grief. I don't know if you've ever been there. A grief made much worse by the fact that he knows he's brought this on himself. If he'd not slept with Bathsheba, then this wouldn't happened. Wouldn't have happened. If only. If only I'd not slept with Bathsheba, this wouldn't have happened. If only I had not killed Uriah. If only I had punished Amnon for raping his sister. If only I'd cared for Tamar as a father should have. If only I had disciplined Absalom when I had the chance. If only, if only, if only, if only. I don't know if you feel like you've got a lot of if onlys in your life. My life is full of them. Things I regret, things I wish I could unsay. Opportunities that I've wasted. Friendships that I've not paid enough attention to and withered. Conflicts I wish I'd resolved. People I wish I'd reached out to. Things I wish I had not done. Things I wish I had done. There are many if onlys in my life, too many to count, and I'm sure it's the same for you as well. How do we manage this? How do we manage this? How do we live with ourselves, friends? How do we find relief from the pain that so many of us carry around with us everywhere we go? Like a heavy weight in our souls. Grief is one thing, right? It's awful. Grief mixed with regret is another thing altogether. Now, of course, many people try to drown out their grief and their regret uh, with constant distraction or entertainment or drugs or alcohol or pornography, or they run from their regrets by being constantly on the move, you know, from one job to the next, from one relationship to the next, from one place to the next, from one experience to the next, from one church to the next. But no matter how far you run or how often you change your environment, no matter how much you try to mask it over, there is one person that you will never be able to escape. There's one person who will always be with you wherever you go. And that person is you. You cannot escape your own inner life. You cannot run from your sins and your failures. And if there's anything that stands out to me from the life of David, it's this. If we don't deal with our sins, they will always, always deal with us in the end. As I said a couple of weeks ago, either you'll be killing your sin or it will be killing you. So that's something David is learning yet again, tragically, in his life. The kingdom is safe, absolutely, but he is utterly devastated and he has shamed his soldiers with his grief to the point where they almost desert him. So he goes into his chamber over the gate where he can be by himself and he weeps and he weeps. Five times he says, oh, my son, my son, my son. I think facing the death of a child must be just about the worst thing a person can experience. But facing it knowing that it was ultimately your own fault would be almost unbearable. No wonder David says, I wish I had died in the place of you. 
Now, no doubt, when David was just a young shepherd boy, tending his father's sheep, the youngest of his family, no real prospects, not apparently destined for anything out of the ordinary, he could not possibly have imagined the way his life was going to turn out, right? And here's my question for us as we close out the life of David, which starts out so well. David has so many great triumphs and overcomes unbelievable obstacles. But ultimately and tragically, his reign is defined by David's greater failures, which leaves him in the end of his life carrying a burden of guilt and deep regret. And the problem is, it will be the same way for many of us. Uh, Sure, it's unlikely that we'll be remembered in history books, but each of our lives will be marked by many successes and many, possibly many, many failures. You know, perhaps we'll hope that our successes will outweigh the failures in the end, but how will we know? How will we know? Regardless of our scorecard, one thing I know for sure, friends, brothers and sisters, is that every single person in this room is a sinner and a failure. You have made some terrible choices and you are likely carrying around in your hearts some ugly and painful regrets. For some of you, the regret and the pain may at times feel overwhelming. So again, I ask, what do we do with all of this? How do we deal with it? What do we do with all of this pain? Friends, if we want to find healing, there is one thing that we must certainly not do. Let me start with the negative. You must not avoid the truth. You must not avoid the truth. You must face up to the reality of yourself as you really are. Unlike David, who despite asking for forgiveness, did not really face up to his mistakes, right? He doesn't really address them. And we see that because he allowed them to make him passive and unwilling to act when it was really needed until it was too late. The truth is most of us are much worse than we dare to admit. All of us make light of our sins. Nearly all of us tell ourselves that we're not really that bad. Uh, Fleming Rutledge says this, it's on the slide, we are responsible for, before God for our sin and yet we are unable to liberate ourselves from its grip. We are in a desperate situation, deserving of God's wrath and marked out for his judgment, each of us individually and all of us collectively. Indeed, it is only by endeavoring to look sin straight in the face that we are able to understand grace. Sentimental evasions are long-range cruelties. In other words, to avoid dealing with sin in the short term, even if it provides you with some temporary relief, is to pronounce cruelty on your life later on. And maybe not just yourself, maybe on a whole bunch of other people around you as well. In this tragic story, it's not just David and Absalom who suffer. I mean, he's the king, but 20,000 men lose their lives. Because David failed to act when it was needed. Or as Ronald Rolfheiser puts it, whenever pain is not 
transformed is transferred. Whatever pain is not transformed is transformed. So if we will not let the grace of God transform our pain into wisdom and blessing, we will transfer it and pass it on to others. That's almost exactly what David does toward the end of his life. The problem is, and I know that this is something we all struggle with, it takes an immense amount of emotional strength to face the truth about ourselves and to admit just how much sin there is in our lives. This is why we don't ask the people around us to tell us exactly what it is that they really think of us or what they really observe with our behavior. We'd be devastated. Our well-crafted facade would crumble and we'd feel exposed. The truth is, I am much worse than you would believe and so are you. Now, part of the problem, I think, is that we haven't really believed the gospel. We haven't truly believed that we are totally loved unconditionally by Jesus. Because it's only the love of God that gives us the confidence to face the truth about ourselves. When we know that we are loved unconditionally by God, which has been expressed to us through Christ Jesus, when we know the riches of that love, it gives us confidence and strength to face ourselves and to own up to what we really are. But if we don't know that love, and if we're not confident in the grace of God, we will struggle with it. David doesn't deal with his sin. He asks forgiveness for the consequences of his sins, as we all do, right? When we're caught, we say sorry. But he doesn't deal with the root of it. He lets it fester, he avoids it, he becomes passive, he lives in denial, and so he just ends up passing the pain on to other people, first to Amnon and then to Tamar and then to Absalom and then to the whole country. Now, we don't mean to do it, right? Yet so many people feel helpless at the pain that seems to leak out of their lives, especially when we're under stress. No one ever plans to demoralize their spouse through criticism. No one ever plans to wound their kids by emotional outbursts. No one ever plans to alienate their friends with defensiveness or judgment, but it happens time and time again. And Simone Weil, a 20th century French mystic and activist, wrote this, pain and suffering are a kind of currency passed from hand to hand until they reach someone who receives them but does not pass them on. Let me read that again. Pain and suffering are a kind of currency passed from hand to hand until they reach someone who receives them but does not pass them on. Did you hear that? Did you hear the gospel in that statement? Did you hear the good news in that statement? This is the gospel in a nutshell. This is what we mean by sin, a kind of currency of pain and suffering that we cannot stop committing against ourselves and others. We pass it on until it finally reached someone who received it all willingly, but instead did not pass it on, but turned it into grace and forgiveness. Praise God. He received all our pain. He received all our iniquity. Jesus, when he died on the cross, bled for our sins. He took it all in and did not pass it on, but transformed it into grace 
so that we might be forgiven. So how do we deal with our regrets? How do we stop passing on our pain? Friends, the only way I know how is that we need to look to Jesus who has already suffered under the weight and the disaster and the consequences of our sin for you and on your behalf. So that means you are free. You are free to come to him honestly. Come to him with reality. Come to him facing the truth about yourself and lay down your life at his feet, knowing that he will help you, knowing that he will he will bless you, knowing that he will forgive you, knowing that he will restore you, knowing that he will love you, knowing that he will take what the enemy has stolen from you and give you back life and peace. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, it's on the screen, therefore there is now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, we just couldn't meet the standard. We couldn't behave well enough. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so, friends, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. All of this is a gift to you, which you simply receive. You turn to him and you say, help me, and he offers you life and forgiveness and peace and joy and restoration. And he sets you free from not only the weight and the consequence of sin, but over time enables you to live into this new creation that you have become in him, being freer and freer over time from the regrets and the guilt and the pain and the suffering that build up in our souls over time. We find that we have been changed from glory to glory. It doesn't happen like that. Sometimes it does. But most of the time it's a process of surrender as we learn more and more how to receive and live into the love and grace of God, which is freely given to us. We don't earn it, we receive it. So in other words, what David was unable to do, his greater promised son did for all of us. Jesus died in the place of we weary sinners. And unlike David, who shed his tears of regret over his own sinful and guilty life, Jesus, the man of sorrows, came to bear our griefs, to bear our sorrows, and to weep on our behalf. And he was able to do all of that because the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The iniquity of us all and all of our iniquity. The iniquity of us all and all our iniquity. That means there is not a single sin that you have committed or will commit that is too great for the grace of God. Do you believe that? It's as that truth gets into us that we can let our regrets go and put them into perspective. When we can say, okay, yes, I'm a failure, I'm a sinner, I've made many mistakes, but the grace of God is greater than all of that, and one day all things will be made new. 
I don't have to live under the weight of this all the days of my life. I can keep handing it over to Jesus day after day. His mercies are new every morning, which is why Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Heavy laden with what? With the burdens and the uh, the guilt and the regret and the pain that we carry. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Put, Put your burdens upon me and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. I will give you peace. I will give you joy. I think this is what it means to walk in the Spirit, to be a Spirit-filled person. It's not really about the gifts, as helpful as they are. It's mostly about the transformation of our character. What kind of person are you becoming over time as you walk in the Spirit of God? This is why Paul says, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh, which are anger, envy, rage, malice, spite, revenge, immorality, and all of that. Christ will work in you so that, like him, you can become a person who does not pass on the pain, but who transforms it into love from hate into love, from anger into peace, from selfishness into generosity, from indifference into compassion, and from regret into wisdom. So as we come to the end of our Life of David series, I know today's been a heavy one. We're challenged to ask, how might we live so that we don't end up as David did? Someone who started out so well and yet ended so badly. And I can't think of a better scripture to finish this with than Hebrews 12, verse 1. It's on the screen. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, including David, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, friends, consider him, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What I'm going to do is just take a moment to pray through that passage of Scripture. And if there's anything this morning as I've been talking that has touched a nerve for you, that has resonated with you, I encourage you to join with me as I pray through this. So let's close our eyes and focus our hearts on Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the witness of David's life, both the triumphs and also the failures. And it helps us to recognize that even though we stumble and we sin, even though we make mistakes and we fail, Lord, you're always at work.
you never stop working. And even throughout all of David's life, though he stumbled so greatly, you were still with him and you still helped him. Lord, we give you thanks that this morning we can celebrate that despite the mistakes that we have made, despite our own failures, despite our own weakness and our own sin, you are here right now reaching out to us to call us back to the Father. You are reminding us today that you love us unconditionally. And that there's not a single thing that we have done that is too great for your mercy. So help us, Lord Jesus, to throw off the things that hinder us and the sin that so easily entangles. And I pray for anyone here this morning who feels entangled by sin. I pray that you would come, reach into their heart and untangle that knot in Jesus' name. The enemy loves to bring chaos and confusion and death. But you, Lord Jesus, you bring peace and you bring wisdom and you bring life. And I pray that each person here this morning who is longing to encounter you, longing to be free, would experience that wisdom and that truth and that love and that life. And I pray for each of us, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to keep running our race with perseverance. As we fix our eyes on you, Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, I thank you that you're the the one who gave birth to our faith. You are the one who brought faith alive in us and you are the one who will perfect it in the end. You're at the beginning and the end and you're with us every step of the way in between. And so I pray this morning for each one of us, if we've grown weary, if we're feeling tired, if we're feeling battle weary, if we're feeling heavy laden and weighed down, that you would come now this morning and help us to place those burdens and that weight on you as we fix our eyes on you and trust that you will carry us through to the end, no matter what. That you are good, you are gentle, you are humble of heart. You invite us, all of us who are weary and heavy laden, Come alongside you and you will give us rest. Thank you, Jesus. And so, Jesus, we give you thanks for the cross, that you are willing to endure its, its shame and pay the penalty for our sin. And you have now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This morning, we consider you, Jesus. We look to you. strength and your peace flood into our bodies, 
just take a moment if there's something in your life that you need to deal with with the Lord just to do that right now pray in the name of Jesus that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, may guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. May you not grow weary and lose heart in Jesus' name. Amen.